So in 2009, several videos circulated of a man dancing on a hill at a music festival, and some of you might be familiar with these videos. He starts off alone and slightly off rhythm as everyone watches him. His dance moves are idiosyncratic, to say the least. It's a lot of flailing limbs. But he doesn't seem to care that other people are pointing and laughing or that people have taken out their phones to record him. As an observer, it's a bit more painful to watch. This man is embarrassing himself in front of all these people. Then suddenly, someone joins him. This guy's dance moves are also erratic and careening across the grass. They're wild. And then one more person and then another. People begin running, literally running to join in until the whole hillside is up and dancing. And given the smiles on everyone's faces, it seems like the same people that were pointing and laughing had wanted to dance all along. They'd just been waiting for someone else to give them permission. The thing is, this video is not really about dancing, and what we call what he did dancing, honestly, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that it matters, because what that man was actually doing and what he encouraged everyone else on that hillside to do was to be fully present and fully himself. What is it that holds us back from being present, from being ourselves? On Yom Kippur, we take away the crutches that help us be more palatable for social consumption. We wear simple clothing. We refrain from sex. We don't work. Now, now we put away our phones. We fast. This is not to say that clothes or sex or jobs or social media or food or alcohol are inherently bad. Judaism is not an ascetic tradition. An indulgence, when done thoughtfully, can be a way of celebrating that we're alive. But all of these things can be and are so often used to edit who we are, whether it's hiding our flaws, projecting status, or distracting us from how we really feel. Today is about stripping away these things to ask who are we really when we are present in ourselves. Right now, you have nowhere else and no one else to be. Our tradition tells us, tells us that this kind of full-body, full-minded presence is more than just an awareness of where and who you are. It's the definition of joy. Rabbi Alan Liu once wrote that joy is any feeling fully felt, any experience we give our whole being to. It is showing up as our whole selves, a celebration of both the parts of ourselves we are proud of and the parts of ourselves we're still working on, our strengths and our rough edges. Joy is gratitude for being alive here and now, even if being alive isn't always easy. Joy is being you. Joy is being you and letting the concerns of what others think fade into the background noise. And I'm not just talking about the people who are pointing and laughing at you, because let's be honest, we think people are doing this a lot more often than they actually are. I'm talking about stilling the small voice that exists inside each of us, the one that tells you to be embarrassed or ashamed of what you would do if no one was watching. Now imagine if Beyonce or Georgia O'Keeffe or Harvey Milk had held back from sharing their full selves with others because they refused to be different. This world would be a much more impoverished place. And this isn't about not feeling anxious or afraid. I'm pretty sure Beyonce still gets butterflies in her stomach. In fact, she once actually shared that when she feels nervous, she knows that she's going to put on a good show. Now these individuals 
teach us about the incredible possibility that comes from taking the risk of owning our joy, not despite, but alongside our fear. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, a Hasidic master who by all accounts grappled with severe depression throughout his short life, once taught mitzvah gedolah lichiot besimcha. It is a great mitzvah, if not the greatest mitzvah, to live with joy. Now, it would be very easy to dismiss this teaching if we only understand joy as happiness. Given the brokenness that exists in the world around us, it would be naive, if not deeply irresponsible, to aspire towards a perpetual state of bliss. But joy is more complex than that. This is the kind of not-so-secret secret of Judaism. To live with joy is l'chaim, to choose life without expectation or pretense, encountering each moment with that full-bodied, full-minded presence I mentioned earlier. Each moment including the difficult ones, including the truly terrible ones. It is this unapologetic insistence on living that has sustained our people through millennia shot through with tragedy. And our rituals, our rituals, they invite us to practice this complicated kind of joy, even even the hardest ones. Of the 613 mitzvot enumerated by our tradition, Bearing the dead is singled out as one of the most, if not the most, important. It is an act of incredible kindness for which there's no benefit, there's no personal gain. After the coffin is lowered into the ground and a handful of soil from Israel is sprinkled over the lid, every person present takes turns shoveling dirt into the open grave. There is no There's no sleight of hand here. There's no attempt to elide this experience, the heaviness of that shovel and the smell of raw earth and the sound of soil hitting the casket. This is what the rabbis call simcha shel mitzvah, the joy that comes from doing a mitzvah with an awareness of body and a fullness of mind that can only happen when we show up as our whole selves. Our messy and unrestrained heartbreak reminding us with a painful kind of gratitude that we are alive and we are here. When I sit down with families and friends after someone they love has died, our conversation rarely focuses on what the author David Brooks once called resume virtues, what he defines as the skills you bring to the marketplace. Awards and accomplishments, if they are mentioned, are usually saved for the obituary. What folks talk about instead are their eulogy virtues, the qualities that made them them what we might call their joy, the ways they showed up fully present and fully themselves. It was needlepoint or bird watching or their exasperating but sweet habit of having long conversations with strangers at the checkout line. It was the guarantee that they would always pick up the phone when you called them in a crisis or their insistence that they had to be the last to say goodbye to the point that they would stand in the middle of the driveway and wave at you until your car turned the corner at the end of their street. It was their tough love or their contagious laughter. It was the way they danced to the beat of their own drum. It was how they lived authentically, bucking trends or traditions. Our joy is what defines us because joy is what happens when we are us. There's a story about Rabbi Zusha of Hanipo, a Hasidic luminary of the 18th century. Word travels among his disciples that he is on his deathbed, so they rush to his side to ensure that he is comforted in his final moments. 
they find him crying uncontrollably. One student asks, Rabbi, why are you crying? In your life, you have been as wise as Moses and as kind as Abraham. Through his tears, Zusha responds, When I die and I stand before the heavenly court, they won't ask me, Zusha, why weren't you as wise as Moses and kind as Abraham? They will ask me, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? Between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we are tasked with the project of Teshuvah, which is often and I think very unhelpfully translated as repentance, when really it means to return. Not to become something or someone else, but to come back to what makes you, you. It is the work of stripping away the things that inhibit us from being true to ourselves, the things that prevent Zusha from being Zusha, or me from being me, or you from being you, grudges and regrets, expectations both socially prescribed and self-imposed, timelines of what you should accomplish and how you should achieve it and by when. To do teshuva is to practice being fully present, fully you. The Talmud tells the story that one day Rabbi Eliezer was sitting with his students and said, do teshuva one day before your death. Of course, the students responded, it's impossible to know when we'll die. And this is literally the theme of our liturgy this season, right? We don't know how long we'll live or when we will die, by fire, by water, wealthy or poor, painfully or peacefully. To which Rabbi Eliezer said, exactly. So go do teshuva now. The life we have is limited, so why spend it being anyone other than yourself? Several years ago, I had the privilege of meeting Edie Windsor. She was a remarkable woman who spent her life fighting for LGBTQ civil rights, and I was very lucky to know her as a congregant. She was with her her wife, Thea, for over 40 years. They met in 1963, and in 1967, they got engaged. Thea actually proposed with a circular diamond pin, fearing that a traditional ring would out them at a time when it was still legal to fire someone for being gay. Edie and Thea maintained their relationship both through the expected challenges of growing old with someone and through the unexpected obstacles of legalized discrimination and Thea's progressive multiple sclerosis. After Thea died, Edie was denied spousal inheritance rights, and she took their case all the way to the Supreme Court and won. And United States versus Windsor was a pivotal case in securing marriage equality in this country. So at the party that followed the Supreme Court's decision, I went up to Edie to offer my congratulations. I felt very, very lucky to be there. So I tentatively walk up to her and I ask, how did she do it? Maintain a 40-plus-year relationship, whether hardship and heartbreak, take on the government of the United States and win. So now I need to paint a picture of Edie Windsor for all of you right now. She was proudly Jewish and, and unapologetically a New Yorker. She loved a well-tailored pantsuit. Her blonde hair always fell in these like impeccable waves on either side of her face, and she was tiny. I think the top of her head probably came up to my chest. So Edie gets this glimmer in her eye, and she leans in close to me, and she says two things. One, keep it hot. (laughs) And two, do not delay joy. 
So I'm going to let you all figure out the first one on your own. But I want to take a moment to talk about her second point. Do not delay joy. And because of who she was, and because of the life that she lived, I don't think Edie meant happiness or fun. I think she meant joy in the most Jewish sense of the word, to show up fully and fully yourself in every moment we are given. So I know we all have it. I like to call it the drawer of delayed joy. It could be a shelf or a basket or a corner of the closet, but it's a standard feature of most of our homes. It's the place you keep that really nice candle that you're going to eventually burn when company comes over, or the bottle of wine that you'll open when you have the right reason to celebrate, or the book that you'll read when you have a moment to sit down, or the watercolors you'll pick up again when you're less busy, or the list of friends you've been meaning to call, or the meditation practice that you've been meaning to come back to, or you get the picture. I'm sure we all have it somewhere, right? So for me, it was a box of bath bombs that I was saving for an evening of self-care. They had been sitting in that drawer for so long that they had turned to chalk and crumbled. So I had to marry Kondo those bath bombs because they very much no longer sparked joy. <laughs> in fact, they had actually turned into a source of regret, a reminder of something that I had been meaning to do but never did. I really should have used them before they became unusable. To take Edie's advice is to grab hold of the time we have now without reservation, to burn the candle, to drink the wine, to tell those that we love that we love them, to laugh out loud, to have a good cry, to dance, to not delay joy is to get rid of all the stuff that is holding us back from living our lives unapologetically and authentically. And speaking of Marie Kondo, she recently admitted that with several young children running around the house, she'd kind of given up on keeping it tidy. I know, I know some of us are probably feeling very vindicated by that confession, myself included, right? See the aforementioned bath bombs. But I actually think that her letting the house get a bit cluttered to spend more time with her kids speaks to the message that Marie was always sharing. That because our time and our energy are limited, because we don't know what tomorrow will bring or if tomorrow will even happen, we need to be willing to let go of the stuff that doesn't spark joy so that we have more space for the things and the people that do. And here's the thing about that term. What we translate as spark joy, tokimeku in Japanese, is better understood as the sudden awareness of your heart beating in your chest. It could be because we're falling in love. It could be because we're excited, but it could also be the pang of nostalgia for a time long gone by, or because we're remembering someone that we lost. The Marie Kondo method is about bringing awareness and intention to each moment, whether it's folding your clothes or playing with your children. It's about joy, full-throated, fully felt. The lesson here is that joy doesn't just happen. It takes our attention and our presence. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who served as the chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, once wrote that joy is the grateful acceptance and celebration of today, this day, whether difficult or delightful. And let's be honest, most of our days are a bit of both. That's life. As the psalm goes, Ze hayom asa Adonai nagila This, this is the day that God has given us. 
Let us celebrate it. Let us lean in. Let us find joy, not delayed or deferred, not lost in the clutter of past regrets or future concerns, and certainly not lost in mindless scrolling or retail therapy or drinking too much or any of the other ways we distract ourselves from being fully present. Too often we treat busyness as a virtue and we'll find anything to fill the gaps in our lives. Sometimes I think we're afraid that doing nothing is an indictment of our worth. And this is why we prohibit these things on Yom Kippur, quieting the noise just long enough that we might hear that still, small voice within us that is a reminder of who we really are, what we really want. It's a lot easier said than done. But that which is worth doing is often not easy. Mitzvah gedulah lichiot besimcha. It is a great mitzvah, if not the greatest mitzvah, to live with joy. I believe that this is the best thing we can do in response to a world that teaches us that we are lacking or less than. We are constantly, constantly barraged with messages telling us that a product or an experience, almost always something that can be bought or achieved, will bring us that sense of wholeness and therefore happiness. And this is the lie of consumerism and runs counter to the fundamental claim of our tradition that each of us, each of us is inherently good enough. Each of us is inherently good enough. Yes, even today on Yom Kippur, we recognize the ways we have fallen short of our fullest expression of self because we believe in our ability to change, to say that each of us deserves a second chance to do better alongside the belief that we actually have the capacity to do so is an unequivocal affirmation of our worth. I also believe that to live with joy is the best thing we can do in response to hate. This, in particular, is not easy. I imagine that none of us are immune to the news of increased and increasingly violent anti-Semitism in this country. And although we live at the safest moment in the history of our people, the past teaches us that we should never get too comfortable or too complacent with this fact. We never know when the promise of our liturgy, who by fire and who by water, who by extremists, who by terrorists, will come for any of us. I hate very few things, and Judaism teaches that hate is only reserved for the worst of what we do to one another. But I do truly hate that I am always aware of where the exits are. I hate that when I'm walking on the sidewalk, a car slowing down or a person following too close behind me puts me on alert. I hate that bulky bags or bulky clothes on a stranger, the kind that could hide a gun, makes me uncomfortable. And I hate, I hate that guns are so easy to access which makes the hate that others might feel toward me and the people I love so unnecessarily deadly. But a life only filled with hate is no life at all. Because in the end, hate leaves no room for anything else. To live, to live vivaciously and vibrantly in our wholeness of being, we must live with joy the kind that helps us fully feel each and every moment we have been given as the most authentic expression of the person that only we can be. This is not an act of naivety. It is an act of defiance. The Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard once wrote that it takes religious courage to rejoice. Despair is easy. Despair is easy. But to diminish who we are, to disappear, that's exactly what the bigots want. 
Joy calls us to be even more of the thing that they hate. More Jewish, more queer, more feminine, more trans, more non-binary, more racially and culturally diverse, more us to do exactly what we are doing here in this room right now, observing Yom Kippur, because Yom Kippur is nothing if not unapologetically and distinctly Jewish. Joy in the face of hate is an incredible act of spiritual resistance. So last year on Rosh Hashanah, I spoke about the resilience and resolve it takes to move through the brokenness we experience in the world, whether it's of our own creation or due to the simple fact that life, life is hard sometimes. It had only been a few months since I had finalized my divorce, and suddenly I found myself on the other side of one of the most difficult seasons of my life. I cried when we sang, Min HaMetzar Karatiya, the Anani Bamerachavya, from a narrow place I called out and you answered me with expansiveness. I had come through the narrowness into a new and spacious sense of self. Now there was freedom, but also ambivalence, and some bewilderment, and the very uncomfortable question of, well, what now? I had filled so much of my life with worry and regret, with meeting the milestones of marriage, a house, a career, with trying to repair a relationship that was broken and in the end meant to stay that way that I had never had the space to think about, much less pursue, what joy looked like for me. I think getting divorced was the first truly selfish thing that I had done. And I don't mean selfish in an uncaring or careless way. When we're sorting through the clutter in our homes, Marie Kondo says we should gather each thing that we're thinking of throwing away and take a few minutes to hold it, remember what you appreciated about it, say thank you, and put it aside. Together and apart, my ex-husband and I had sorted through seven years of memories and milestones to decide whether this was something that we should keep. Choosing to end my marriage was a painful and deliberate decision to prioritize my well-being over anyone else's expectations of how I should spend the remainder of my life, however long or however short it may be. So there I was last year in my eat, pray, love moment trying to discover who I was outside of the narrowness of socially prescribed shoulds and shouldn'ts, to be fully present and fully me, to take a risk, to no longer delay joy. Now, the problem here is that I have a very low threshold for embarrassment. I think this is something that actually plagues a lot of us who grew up in the participation trophy generation. Not, I mean, look, it's not bad to celebrate everyone's contribution to the team, but hidden, hidden underneath was a subtle message that the worst thing you could do is to do something not deserving of a passing grade or a gold star. I've never been one to attempt something, especially in public, that wasn't practiced or prepared, or do something that might make me look goofy or cause people to make fun of me, even if it's something that I really want to do. Every time Rabbi Lizzie asks us to get up and dance, I am so grateful that I can pretend to be really preoccupied with my prayer book. <laughs> but I want to be the person who dances with abandon. But what can I say? It's hard. It's hard, and I have probably missed out on a lot of joy worrying about what others might think. So about a month ago, I found myself at a music festival with my boyfriend. We had arrived early to see Aluna, a top 10 artist of his, and because it was far away, and because it was still rush hour, the festival grounds were fairly empty. There were probably like a couple hundred people hanging around the stage, which in that kind of space, if you've ever been to a music festival, is like not a lot of people. 
And the set was great. It was very, very dance forward. But folks were mostly tapping their toes, nodding their heads. No one was really moving. Of course, my boyfriend grabs me by my hands and takes me to the very front of the crowd, where people have probably left like a 20-foot gap between like, them and the stage. Like, he wasn't going to miss this moment. He starts to dance, and he starts to make me dance with him. And I actually love to dance, I really do. As, as embarrassing as I could you know, feel sometimes, like, I do really love to dance, but usually like, in the anonymity of the crowd. But here we were, in that 20-foot gap, very much, very much alone. And the thoughts fled in, oh God, like, not here. Everyone is looking, everyone is laughing, we're embarrassing ourselves, I look stupid, we aren't safe. And he can tell that something is up. He has this uh, very wonderful and incredibly annoying way of knowing when I'm holding onto a feeling. So he grabs my hands and he looks me in the eyes and says, hey, be here in this moment with me. Be here in this moment with me. So I take a deep breath and I start dancing. And it's so hard to push down all of those fears, but step by step, it becomes a little easier, my body becomes a little looser, and my heart becomes a little freer, and suddenly in the space that had only been occupied by worry and concern, joy, unapologetic and undelayed, also emerges. And guess what? People joined us. They had just been waiting for someone else to give them permission to be fully present and fully themselves. I believe that in every moment, in every moment we're given, each of us is being invited into joy, to bring awareness to the time that you have, to do what it is that you feel called to do, to be wholly and unapologetically yourself. If you can clear out some of the clutter, if you can create a little space for silence and listen closely, you'll hear it. God whispering, be here in this moment with me. Be here in this moment with me. But whether or not you'll dance, that's up to you. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. Thank you.